one of the challenges Bitcoin has, I mean, being decentralized and fairly private, is, you know, how do you know if you have consensus or not? There's been an extraordinary amount of news over the last three or four days. I think it was last Thursday there had been this dispute about a attempt by a lot of like industry companies in the industry to what they would call an upgrade to the technology. Other people viewed it as a fork of the technology. It seemed to fail to achieve consensus, and so they canceled that. Welcome to the Noted Podcast. This is episode 0.1.0. Today, we have a very special guest, David Harding. We're excited to have him on. And I've got my co-host here, Michael Goldstein. Welcome, Michael. How's it going? Very well. I wanted to start with the 0.15.1 release, which was a couple of days ago now. The TLDR on it, uh, given to us by Peter Wool, is that, first of all, Bitcoin Core will now be better at detecting bad peers and disconnecting them. This was in response to or in anticipation of Segwit2x. It's no longer possible to instruct the built-in mining code to limit blocks in terms of bytes, only by weight, which is consistent with the new block size limit with SegWit. Some bug fixes, of course, always bug fixes, and some minor improvements to RPC output. Thanks, Bitcoin Core team, for putting that out and helping strengthen the Bitcoin network in anticipation of a disruption, which apparently we're not going to be experiencing. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. We know that you don't do media appearances very often, so we're very grateful to have you. Very honored. Thank you guys for having me. So, David, how how did you get into Bitcoin, and what's your background? Well, my background is a technical writer. I've been contributing to free software documentation, well, at least free software in any way, since about 2002, documentation for about 10 years now. I don't quite know how I first heard about Bitcoin. Um, I do have a couple posts to the Hashcash mailing list. I wrote a blog about how Finney's RPAL, all that was back in like 2004, 2005. And then one day I just stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper, read it, installed the software and tried it out. Uh, that was in 2010. I had, I posted a few times in a Bitcoin talk forum back then, had one post, I got a reply from Satoshi, which is kind of cool, uh, but it wasn't anything exciting. Um, I, I can't claim I invented some really great thing. Too bad though. In 2014, I started contributing to Bitcoin.org, specifically their developer documentation, which they didn't have any at the time. I saw a post on the Bitcoin developer mailing list by Mike Hearn, of all people, um, asking for contributors. And I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a technical writer. I can help with this. And I volunteered. And along with uh, Savon Kerrigan and Greg Sanders, uh, we wrote the first version of the Bitcoin.org developer documentation, which is about 80 pages to start with. It's up to about 200 pages now. That's very impressive. And, you know, they say the the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I imagine technical writing has given you a, a tremendous library of background knowledge on all of these different Bitcoin related issues. I think so. Uh, I do worry a lot that I'm wrong because often I'm I'm writing this documentation and then I send it out to people to review and they're like, no, 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 no. That's crazy wrong. That's horrible. Um, I have to go and fix it. And I do try to get a lot of review on the stuff that I write, but it does sometimes make me wonder whether I know as much as I think I do. Well, sometimes the developers get things wrong too. So that's, that's why we get bug fixes with each release. That's true. It's good that we have a, a strong review process. Let's launch into some current events. Segwit2x, it, an email was sent to the Segwit2x mailing list purporting to be from Mike Belshi. And then shortly after it was confirmed to be from him. 
it'd be nice if they use PGP. We could confirm upfront. But regardless, a list of Bitcoin company startup CEOs stated that they were no longer backing Segwit2x. Not sure what what that means. David, what were your thoughts on that email? Um, Well, I I completely agree that it would be nice if these things were cryptographically signed. Anybody can send a post to a mailing list claiming to be anybody else. I am very glad that the Segwit2x hard fork was called off. I think it would have caused a lot of user confusion. I think there would have been a lot of people who lost money, not necessarily because they made the wrong bet in in a speculation, but just by accident, because there was no replay protection in it. What, what are some, some accidental losses of money that you can have? Is it sending it to an address that is not existent on that network? No, the, the idea there is if I want to pay you some Bitcoin, you're, you're selling me a service, I want to send you a Bitcoin for it. A replay attack would be I would, I would send you a transaction in regular 1x Bitcoin. You would charge me one Bitcoin for the service. That transaction, same transaction could be replayed on the Segwit2x market. So I also sent you a Segwit2x Bitcoin. So you would get overpaid. And if you actually were a nice person and tried to refund that money to me, your refund to me could be replayed on the Bitcoin network. So there's no easy way for someone on one side of a hard fork to pay someone on the other side of the hard fork if there's no replay protection. Now, an example of a network with replay protection is Bitcoin Cash. If I send you a Bitcoin transaction, it can't automatically be replayed on the Bitcoin Cash network. So when I'm sending you Bitcoin, I know I'm only sending you Bitcoin. When I'm sending you Bcash, heaven forbid I should ever do such a thing, then I know I'm only sending you Bcash. Um, And this was very useful. I I did sell all my Bcash um, shortly after the fork. And I didn't have to worry about replay stuff. I had to worry about a lot of other things. It was scary, but I was happy that I didn't have to worry about replays. So why did the Segwit2x project not implement replay protection? They made a, a bunch of different arguments about it. And to be fair, you know, it was a bunch of people behind that project, like all of 12. The general gist I got from it was that they wanted to make it seem like they weren't changing the network. They wanted to make it seem like they had an upgrade this was an upgrade. It wasn't going to break anybody else's stuff. So they didn't want to implement default replay protection, even though it can only really be implemented from the side that is doing the hard fork. The side that isn't being hard forked can't say at some random point in the future, you know, all of our old transactions aren't going to be valid. So they, they basically didn't want to take blame for breaking the network. Um, there was an interesting talk at Scaling Bitcoin last weekend by AJ Towns, who's a former Debian project leader, um, about how we can add a, a, a new thing to Bitcoin so that when someone does create a hard fork, we can sign our transactions in a slightly different way that will only be valid on the hard fork side or will only be valid on the Bitcoin side. It's a really clever idea. I've actually heard a variant of it before. Uh, he also had an idea for how we can sort of put a flag in the protocol so that people can make decentralized bets or trades, whatever you want, on the future of a hard fork before a hard fork happens, which could help form a market around these things really early on and could give us you know, good data on how much actual support there was for the hard fork. Or it could be just a whole bunch of speculative madness. I don't really know. Right. And on that note, it seems as though the they called off Segwit2x due to a lack of support one of the data points being the futures trading for uh, Segwit2x futures. Yes, I think that 
in my opinion, that was probably the strongest reason for them calling it off. It's really hard to measure community support or non-support for something just because we don't know who these people are. I mean, there's a few people you interact with who you're pretty sure are real. Like I've, I've never met Pierre, so he could be a fake person, but I'm pretty sure he's real. And I'm, you know, pretty sure, you know, he actually owns Bitcoin. And so he has an opinion that matters, but there's a whole bunch of other people on Twitter who I, I don't know. And it's hard to, you know, put a lot of weight into polls and other stuff when it's a lot of people who could be fake. However, a market where people are actually, you know, betting their money, that's harder to fake data. It's not impossible to fake, but it's harder to fake data. They sent this out. It's a, a week before the proposed hard fork. But it seems to be that there are some holdouts who are going to go forward with this. Do you see this causing any disruption or are they just too small to uh, cause a problem? Again, it's hard to measure these things. Uh, currently, the Bitfinex futures market for the Segway2x fork is giving them like $300 on what are currently $6,000 Bitcoins. So it's 5%. That's that's not a lot of confidence. Uh, it's a low volume market, so it could be wrong. I mean, it could be wrong anyway, but I don't give it a lot of, uh, I, don't, I don't personally have a lot of confidence in it. The claims I saw were that it would be about 30% of the hash power too. And that's, that's not a very significant amount of hash power in, in the context of Bitcoin. It's not a significant amount of uh, hash power. Well, it is a significant amount of hash power, but it's it's plenty enough for a fork chain. However, the person who claimed that is not someone I recognize as a miner. I think he may have been just blowing smoke out of somewhere. Hmm. Which uh, we're seeing right now a big uh, pump in Bitcoin Cash following that news that Segwit2x was being canceled. And part of that is we're seeing a lot of hash rate pointing towards Bitcoin Cash. Uh, which is slowing down Bitcoin blocks. Do you have any concerns about that uh, disrupting Bitcoin even over the medium term? I do think it's a pump. Again, I you know I work on the technical side. I'm not a market guy. Um, those are the people who you really have to look to to make commentary on pumps and dumps and that kind of stuff. Um, however, I think anybody who's been Bitcoin for more than a year or so. It just knows what pumps and dumps look like. The long-term impact of, or at least medium-term impact of the hash rate difference is that Bitcoin's inflation rate this year is going to be lower than expected, which is kind of cool. It means two things. It means that uh, if the inflation hasn't been entirely priced into Bitcoin so far, that we're going to have a better year than expected in prices. And it also means that we're going to have a subsidy a little bit longer in the future. Um, and that subsidy is... Um, I've heard it described as our runway in startup terms, our runway for making sure we get the system transitioning to fees in a smooth manner for long-term security of an inflation-free system. So it's kind of cool that they're kind of giving us this extra runway, um, even if it's coming at the cost of slower blocks now. And I think on that side, there's also an um, an advantage to slower blocks, which is that we're getting more practice with the fee market. We're, we're seeing you know, high fees right now, we're getting wallets converting to um, adaptive fees. We're seeing innovations in fee estimations that might not have happened until much later, just because fees are so high right now as a result of slow blocks. And is Bitcoin Cash getting fast blocks and thus uh, getting the opposite issue of their runway getting shorter and shorter and them not having any roadmap for having fee market 
Yes. So they're getting, um, I think right now they're getting blocks about 30 blocks a an hour. So a block every two minutes, which is pretty crazy. And they're eating through their runway at a vastly accelerated pace. So far, there's about 100,000 new Bitcoins have been produced on the Bitcoin Cash hard fork that have been produced on the Bitcoin original unforked software. And that's an incredible amount of inflation of subsidy that they've chewed through. That's going to cost them potentially years of runway in the future. And um, I think some people don't realize when they do, they look at the, uh, the charts for Bitcoin subsidy. They see that we have 100 years of subsidy left before the last Satoshi is mined. But the problems with paying for Bitcoin security and having no fee sniping, which is a, a really technical thing, those start to occur maybe in seven years from now. They could occur as early as three years, but seven years to maybe 11 years is when we're starting to look at real problems caused in Bitcoin by a lack of subsidy. So it's it's really important that we use this time now to figure out the fee market. And they their model is that they want big blocks. They're not going to limit the block size in order to allow the subsidy to phase out. So they're probably going to have to transition to a permanent subsidy or they're going to have to find some innovative new solution. I don't know. To translate, a permanent subsidy would be very inflationary. You're saying that we're, we're getting rid of the 21 million cap and now it's uncapped and it might be increasing by a, a known percentage or uh, maybe at, at the discretion of the miners, they could come up with something like that. I don't know how it would hold any value on the market if it didn't have a fixed cap. I have uh, two remarks on that. The first is that it doesn't have to be a perpetual subsidy. I mean, it doesn't have to be a perpetual inflation. They can actually use something like Demerge, which is implemented in Freecoin, um, which is basically every single block, a small tax is placed on your coins that takes that money and redistributes it to miners. So uh, Freecoin has a 5% annual Demerge. Your coins become 5% less valuable um, every year. They still have a 21 million cap. Those 5% that you lose every year is paid to the miners. That system has the advantage over inflation that it's a lot clearer how you're paying for security. Inflation confuses everybody. Tax of 5% a year makes it really clear how you're paying for security. And it also, in theory, in a system where there's no economic growth, it keeps the prices the same. So with inflation, prices you know increase every year, and it's just confusing all across the economy. In a demerge-based economy, you wouldn't have that. Now, I'm no fan of demerge. It's still suboptimal to a non-inflation, non-demerge currency. And if we can manage that in Bitcoin, that would be fantastic. The other comment there is there's plenty of altcoins that do have permanent inflation. There's Ethereum, there's Monero. They don't seem to be currently suffering from that. It's probably we have to wait to the future to figure out whether to find the, the technical achievement and the economic uh, shelling point, the, the currency everybody decides to use to wait for to see if inflation, permanent low levels of inflation have a high impact on adoption. I had it in mind that people, you know, people go into a project with a certain set of expectations about these economic variables. And if security or technical considerations were to force a change in the economic variables, that that would cause those who originally came in with a set of expectations to be disappointed that their expectations are not being met and thus either abandon the project or no longer be as excited about it as they were uh, because a demerge tax you know would probably 
rub a lot of libertarians <laughs> the wrong way just because of the name <laughs> of the word tax and the idea that someone is taking your money from you by force. You know, the network is taking it from you, coercing it out of you, even though, frankly, I mean, you, you bought into the network and you're voluntarily there. I don't know. I mean, uh, how is demerge that much different from transaction fees? You know, there is a market for transaction fees where there would be no market for choosing how much demerge to pay. Um, but it is a part of the system that used to pay for security. I don't know. It's one of those things like it's all hypothetical. We're really hoping that in Bitcoin, we can just transition from the subsidy to the fees and do that safely, continue to pay for security. And we don't have to deal with permanent inflation or demerge or some other sort of weird thing. Well, what I'm seeing now, based on based on you know today's fee rates that are very high, even at that, people are willing to put the money in. And I believe the transaction fees are reaching the levels of the block reward, if not higher, in the past day or so. David, do you have do you have it in mind about exactly what happened with DevOps, the gentleman who accidentally deleted the library? <laughs> yes, yes. So on Tuesday. Someone destroyed about $200 million worth of Ethereum, and they did that by terminating a shared Ethereum smart contract used to enable multi-sig wallets. The largest users of that contract appeared to be several organizations that ran ICOs on the Ethereum project. So there's a couple of projects that lost you know, more than $10 million, which seems like a big hit to me. So despite having $10 million or more, in an Ethereum smart contract, they appear to have never actually audited the smart contract to figure out, hey, might this break on us? And it was also a very complicated smart contract. Um, it seems to me like they looked at Bitcoin's multi-sig, which is super simple. To do a multi-sig in Bitcoin, besides the public keys and signatures involved, you only have to add four bytes. That's your contract, if you will. It's four bytes. The contract on Ethereum was more than a kilobyte in, you know, machine code. That's crazy, in my opinion. If you're the type of person who thinks that Ethereum is secure, uh, this Gavin Wood person is the kind of person you expect to do security well. But apparently he didn't. Uh, his company didn't. It appears he didn't know how Ethereum worked as well as, well, he didn't know how Ethereum worked as well as some newbie who could come in and just run random codes on this thing and break it. It's one of those things that should make you reconsider the Ethereum security model. If one of its co-founders, if one of its lead security developers is making mistakes on contracts, maybe you should wonder about the all the other parts of, of Ethereum security model. Do you think that it's a cultural problem in the Ethereum development community or a tooling and language and EVM problem that it's kind of a bigger, more fundamental issue with having a Turing complete world computer? I don't know. Um, I, I know you're big on root cause analysis. The culture problem is probably the harder than the technical problems. You've got to have a culture that prizes security very highly in order to get highly secure software. And I think they're in a sort of a startup based release early break stuff model and that you're just not going to get high security from that model. You've got to be willing to be patient, you know, go out there and beat the bushes to get a lot of reviews on your software. You've got to work on keeping things simple um, so they can be easily analyzed. I don't think they have that kind of culture. And I think that as a result, they don't have that kind of software that is very secure. How would you contrast the Ethereum scripting with Bitcoin scripting? Um, so Ethereum has this world computer model, the idea is that everybody's going to use the same computer. 
And the advantage of that is that it makes writing programs very easy. Programmers are already used to writing programs that run on one computer, that have access to random access memory, that have shared state between different parts of the same program. So it makes programming very easy. It has a lot of cost though. It, um, it isn't very scalable because everybody is running the same computer program. Even the parts that nobody cares about at the end, you know, the, the parts that like we're doing this podcast, but we also have a, a video thing running, even though this is a podcast, we're going to throw away all that video at the end. We're just going to save the audio. But in the, in the Ethereum model, because everybody has to run the same thing, all that video has to be written to the chain. That's perhaps not a great analogy, but that's kind of how it works. So it's got poor scalability properties. It has horrible privacy properties because you can share state and so there's an incentive to share state in order to keep the block size small, keep your transaction small in the block size. So the incentive is to share as much as possible, which reveals a lot, a lot. So if you have one user, every Ethereum address is a contract and it shares the same contract between one payment and the next. Whereas in Bitcoin, if you read the original white paper, uh, Nakamoto was very careful to design the system so that addresses, public keys did not get reused. Every time you create a Bitcoin transaction, you use a different public key. And this doesn't provide the greatest privacy, but it provides some pretty good default privacy. It's not your name on the contract. It's not your name on the address. Um, whereas if Pierre had an Ethereum address and I sent him some money, I would know he was Pierre. And that could look at every other spend and receive he had seen, he had received uh, to that single Ethereum address. So it's got bad privacy. On Bitcoin, we don't have a world computer model. We have no shared state between, we don't even call them contracts, between addresses, if you will, and spends. Even within a single transaction, the different spends can't share any state. So there's a lot less incentive to build these privacy-busting uh, things. And there's a lot more scalability because each transaction can be processed independently of any other transaction unless those transactions are ancestors of each other. So we get a lot of differences in this in this model. And I think it's a first most a problem for privacy, second most a problem for scalability. Are there drawbacks, though, to the fact that Bitcoin's approach to it is much more limited than Ethereum's? And do you see innovations in the future on Bitcoin that would address those drawbacks? The drawback is that it's a lot harder to program for Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a, a, a number of limits that are a lot stricter. Ethereum uh, programs are limited by something called gas. So you can use as much computational time as you want, but you have to pay for something called gas in order to fuel that computation. That gives them a lot more flexibility on how they write their programs. Again, it comes back to scale. In Bitcoin, we don't have gas. And the way we deal with having no computational balance on our program is by making all the functions extremely quick and the total size of the program is very small. This results in people writing programs for Bitcoin that just validate what we call you know, witnesses, which is proof that a contract was fulfilled correctly. If you think about it, um, if you sign a, a physical contract for say by a house, you have a few witnesses there. And if there's ever any dispute about those contract, those witnesses can go to court and testify that yes, Pierre and Michael actually signed this contract to buy and sell a house. And by doing that, they don't have to have, you know, he said, she said debates. They don't have to have a recording of the entire contract signing. They don't have to have all this kind of 
stuff that would waste a judge's time in a courtroom. So on Bitcoin, because we have these limits, people tend to just put on the blockchain exactly what they need to cryptographically prove that the contract was was honestly fulfilled. That gives us better scalability, it gives us better privacy, because often these proofs don't tell you everything about the contract. And, and it also, that kind of design, even though you can do the same thing on Ethereum, that kind of design encourages people to do a lot of their computation offline, away from Bitcoin. So it isn't imposing on other Bitcoin users. We have a, a limited number of full nodes, so that's important. The, re- the limitation there, again, is it's, it's harder to program for Bitcoin because you've got to get out of the idea of writing programs for a single computer or even for a single server. You've got to get into the idea of writing programs that prove that they were fulfilled correctly. So basically a difference is that in Ethereum, you want to put everything in the kitchen sink on the blockchain to be able to, to run these programs. While in Bitcoin, you only put on exactly what you need to make a specific proof about your your decision of, of the, the coins you own. Right, right. So uh, Ethereum is like recording yourself making a stake every single step. And Bitcoin is like just taking a picture of that stake at the end and saying that was delicious. You know, maybe not the greatest analogy, but it's... I liked it. A lot more compact. I know, <laughs> you like sticks. It's a lot more compact what people typically do with Bitcoin. Now, again, it's important to specify that within the security bounds of the system, both Ethereum and Bitcoin contracts are permissionless. You can do whatever you want with them. Of course, on Ethereum, we've seen you can't actually do whatever you want with them because if you steal a bunch of money from a poor contract, they're going to go and hard fork and take that money back. In general, the contract languages themselves are supposed to be permissionless. You can do whatever you want. Bitcoin's stricter limits tend to force people to building what I would think of as smarter, smart contracts. What are some uh, new ideas in terms of Bitcoin's contracts that are coming up that seem promising to you? There's actually a whole lot of ideas. Uh, I know you're just setting me up to talk about MAST, which is a proposal that goes back to, I think it's 2012 by Russell O'Connor, who currently works for Blockstream. This is a, this is one of those unsung heroes of Bitcoin. This guy actually saved us from a pretty significant bug back in the day. Basically, it could have been like our own DAO incident. Somebody merged into Bitcoin core source code, a soft fork that had no peer review that I can see whatsoever. And uh, O'Connor came on and figured out how that soft fork was completely broken in just two hours of time. And so, of course, it was removed. And he also proposed separately to that the idea of Merkleized abstract syntax trees, which is a way of using Merkle trees, which are a feature that's already used in Bitcoin to allow SPV clients. Uh, to use Merkle trees in our script to allow programmers to not have to share the parts of their programs that don't get used in a particular instance. So you can have this elaborate contract with lots of you know clauses, if you will. But the, all those clauses that don't end up getting used in Bitcoin, if we adopt MAST, they won't have to be included on the blockchain. Nobody will see them. This improves privacy. They won't have to be on the blockchain, so they improve size. And because it improves size, we can also have a lot more complicated contracts since Bitcoin has some pretty strict size limits. So it's a a big improvement to the ability to create contracts on Bitcoin. O'Connor himself is currently working on basically the next version of MAST, which is a complete reimagining of the Bitcoin script language with a very small number of primitives 
that can be easily proved. Uh, he's calling that simplicity. That is very early stage at this point. His agenda for it was to continue working on it, get review, put out a software development kit so developers could start to play with it, and then try to work towards getting into a side chain like elementsproject.org. What kind of use cases would uh, MAST and Simplicity enable on Bitcoin? I don't think it would be anything really new from what you can do now, except in regard that you could do more. An, an example of how much more you could do is currently, if you want to do a multi-sig on Bitcoin, you can probably get up to one of 200 signatures. So uh, you have, you know, you and your 199 best friends all decide that you want to control uh, a Bitcoin. And so you collect all those public keys, you put them into a script, and then one of you can sign to spend it. That's the highest you can get is 200 on Bitcoin today. With MAST, it's pretty easy to get to about a billion people one of a billion people. And with a little more work and not actually a lot more size, you can get up to basically infinite numbers. So many people that your computer would basically be grinding away forever in order to just do the work. But even if your computer was grinding away for say a year to create a one of you know 8 trillion uh, multi-state contract, it could still be validated by anybody on the Bitcoin blockchain in, I don't know, about 20 microseconds maybe it's 40 microseconds, which is, you know, it's it's great because it, it makes sure the validation is really quick for full nodes because we just can't have full nodes pegging the CPU all the time or nobody's going to actually use them. So it's a it's a, a big scalability win. You do get a few more complexities, but you don't get any new real features to Bitcoin from MAST itself. Simplicity is a new programming language. I guess it has a small number of primitives, but from them, you can build up all the parts, all the things that we currently have in Bitcoin. Plus you could actually build all the stuff you have in Ethereum. On top of that too, the goal would be to still have very strict limits on simplicity. So you probably couldn't do a lot of that Ethereum stuff that's that's high CPU or high memory or random access. And you wouldn't have Turing completeness. Uh, simplicity is designed um, and so is Bitcoin script so that it's statically analyzable. We're getting really geeky here. So uh, just as a summary, what static analysis and Turing completeness is, is there's a, a proof out there that if you have a program of uh, a programming language of sufficient complexity, you can implement any other program in any other programming language in that programming language. So it's basically uh, equality programming languages. But once you get to that point, you can't write a program that can analyze that program because that program that that's being analyzed could include a copy of the analysis program itself. It's, I don't know, complicated and, and blows your mind. We do want to be able to, for security reasons, analyze programs before we run them. So in Bitcoin, we don't allow Turing completeness so that we can statically analyze programs. Simplicity would not allow Turing completeness so that you could statically analyze programs. However, you can do everything you want to do in a Turing complete program in Bitcoin script or in simplicity just by what we call unrolling a loop. So the main feature of a Turing language is a loop. It's an ability or a go-to statement. It's the ability to go back to a previous point in the code and rerun it. In Bitcoin script and simplicity, uh, there are no loops, there are no go-tos, but you can just repeat those steps if you need them. O'Connor's paper about simplicity implements the uh, SHA-256 hash function. And in a normal implementation of that, you would have 32 or 64 rounds, loops, 
which you would do with a loop. You would just have a counter and a loop and you do this 64 times. Well, he just used, allows references. So he just says, do the same step 64 times. He has a, calls the same step 64 times. Really simple. It still keeps the code very small and compact, but allows you to do, uh, to write a SHA-256 SHA pro, uh, program directly into Bitcoin script. The other aspect of his language simplicity is that it's very easy to analyze. So he's already proved that his demo SHA-256 function is equivalent to the one in OpenSSL, which provides a lot of security guarantees that we're not going to blow up the system because of a bug like we've had in Bitcoin and they've also had in Ethereum. I know you've also talked a little bit before about additional privacy features that, you know, that now that we have SegWit and, you know, sidechains continue to be worked on, ideas like Schnorr signatures will be able to eventually potentially come into the fold in the Bitcoin world. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how that combined with MAST can give even more additional privacy. The optimal way to design a Bitcoin contract, if you can do it, you can always do it but is to try to design it so that there's no incentive to attempt fraud or theft or breaking the contract. And then to make the resolution of the contract, because it's it's mutual, everybody's agreed at the end, to make the resolution of the contract just a, a single signature or a multi-sig. So Michael and I might have a convoluted contract with a whole bunch of clauses, but we all get through it. We get to the end. We have an agreement that at the end of this contract, Michael gets 0.4 Bitcoin. I get 0.6 Bitcoin. So at the end, we just go to a multi-sig step in the contract. We both sign that that's the end value of the contract. And we can just broadcast that multi-sig to the chain. We don't have to broadcast all the other stuff. With Schnorr signatures, there's signature aggregation, or we can have signature aggregation, which means you can combine multiple signatures down to a single signature. And a single signature, whether it was me and Michael, or it was uh, Michael, Pierre, and me, or it was 1,000 people or 10,000 people, making it down to a single signature makes it indistinguishable from anybody else who's doing a single signature. If I'm just spending my own Bitcoins, it's indistinguishable from this other thing where there's a thousand people spending their Bitcoins in a, in a really complicated smart contract. This is, of course, fantastic for privacy. MAST allows us to get the privacy aspects because it kind of folds out all the other steps. There's even more experimental work, um, particularly um, Andrew Plester's Scriptless Scripts and uh, Thaddeus Dreija's Discrete Law Contracts that Proposed to use a new type of signature for Bitcoin called Schnorr signatures to, to not even need to use MAST to do this. This has some advantages for size. MAST still takes up space on the blockchain. If you can do everything into a single signature, you get all the, all the advantages of MAST with even less size. You don't get a full featured programming language, which means you have to be really clever about this kind of stuff. And, and uh, Andrew and Thaddeus are really clever people, so I'm not worried about that. And I guess we should stay as some background. Um, Bitcoin's current signature algorithm is ECDSA. Uh, Schnorr signatures actually predate ECDSA. They're extremely elegant design with an incredibly strong security proof. There's, as far as I know, there's no equivalent security proof for ECDSA. Unfortunately, Schnorr signatures were patented. Uh, the patent expired in 2008. Nobody really had a lot of experience with them because nobody used them. They were patented. So Satoshi went with ECDSA, which was had a strong ecosystem around it when he created Bitcoin. There is every reason now to move to Schnorr, and there are currently some developers working on it. Speaking of developers working on things, Scaling Bitcoin was a conference that happened recently in San Francisco where 
developers presented technical papers on either improvements or analyses that they've made or new tools that they've created. So I wanted to get hear your thoughts on which talks you found to be particularly uh, eye-catching. There were a lot of great talks, and I think we're running low on time, so I probably can't cover all the ones that, that excited me. Um, but I think there's... Um, there's a few that I would emphasize for listeners. I think the best talk for a general audience was uh, Joey Ito's talk that was it was kind of about the history of the internet and how it applied to Bitcoin, um, specifically the the development of the internet, how a bunch of people worked on it and moved it from you know a grassroots technical effort into the you know world consuming thing that it is today um, specifically about layers how as it grew it split into different layers with different people working on the different layers um, and different companies who were funding that work and also selling services to customers of just that layer uh, his examples were companies like Cisco which was once the largest company in the world and how we'll probably see something very similar in Bitcoin he also uh, near the end of his talk, he had some very insightful comments about ICOs. He was very critical of them. He said that even if he had a great idea, he would never do it as an ICO because he thinks that they're just filled with scammers and that that there's really no way around that. Even if you have the best of intentions, you can't avoid having your project covered in scammers just because the money's out there. Uh, next talk I would, I would highlight would be the the most surprising talk to me. When you listen to these things, often you're hearing stuff that you've seen described on a mailing list before or that you've heard of before you've read the paper. So the most surprising talk to me was by Brian Levine. And he talked about a protocol he calls Bobtail, which is the short tail, uh, uh, the clip tail on a dog. The problem he was trying to solve is that Bitcoin currently has very high variance in its block times. About 1% of blocks are found in six seconds or less. And about 1% of blocks takes more than 45 minutes. And all the other blocks were in a range of times in the middle. He wanted to reduce that variance so we get blocks that are between seven and a half minutes and 14 minutes. All the blocks, or almost all the blocks, would be within that range. And this would provide a lot more, for, for average users, for average users would be a lot more comfortable if blocks were a lot closer to the 10-minute average. And less variance when it comes to fees, uh, lots of advantages. He also had some other claims that I'm a bit more skeptical about. He had a very simple idea, which was that instead of doing one proof of work per block, miners would generate multiple proofs for walk, lower proofs of work per block, and would combine those together in the block header. Uh, and miners already do something very similar to this for pooled mining. That's how pooled mining works. They target a lower threshold. They send those thresholds to the server. The server pays them a portion of the block reward. So it's already got, you know, a billion dollar economy behind the basic idea there. It's a proven way to reduce variance. He also claimed in his talk that it improves Bitcoin's resistance, uh, double spend resistance for confirmed double spends that would make it harder to do that and that it would reduce the uh, profits for selfish mining at low um, hash rates. And I'm, I'm skeptical of those claims, and I worry that the protocol might induce, uh, introduce additional vulnerabilities. But if those claims are true, even half of them are true, this would be a huge improvement for Bitcoin. It's something I think definitely warrants uh, further investigation. Since you guys are with you know, SNI, um, well, I guess we already talked about that one. You guys have published a whole bunch of articles, republished a whole bunch of articles by Nick Zabo. And so he gave a talk this this uh, year um, with Elaine Owl. And they talked about propagating 
Bitcoin block headers over, you know, $200 worth of shortwave radio equipment. It was a very technical talk and it was mostly about radio stuff and not about Bitcoin stuff. So I'm not sure a lot of people watched it, but it was very interesting. The conclusions were, were very good. And uh, I saw some discussion on Twitter between them and the Blockstream satellite guys on how to maybe improve the amount of data they can send over their protocol. This would be fantastic for Bitcoin. We need resilience against internet-based attacks, uh, routers going down, malicious routers, governments blocking things like the Great Firewall of China. We need a lot of resilience against that stuff. If Bitcoin is going to survive when it gets big, right? And it, it already is big, but as it gets bigger, it's going to threaten more and more people. And they're going to say, we have centralized control over the internet. We're just going to shut you guys down. And it's a big risk right now. And I'm really excited to see Zabel working on that. And I guess the final talk I would highlight uh, is one of personal interest to me. It was by Carl Johan Alm. He talked about improving free estimation using an individual node's memory pool. I really like that because a lot of these other ideas that we saw talking, we saw at Scaling Bitcoin, they required a soft fork or even a hard fork. This is an idea that they can implement right now. No, cons- no changes to consensus. It can be done in a single program. There's no interoperability problems. It's actually something I kind of do myself. I kind of, when I'm setting a transaction, I use fee estimation for Bitcoin Core, but I also check the mempool myself to see if my fee estimates are really far off. And that was his basic idea, was that we would start with Bitcoin Core's current fee estimation, which is based on what transactions are seen in a block, and that we would look at the mempool to see if there was a lower fee that we could we could try to get by. And we would send with that lower fee while marking the transaction as replaceable in case that didn't work. And then we would in- gradually increase the fee. And by using these two pieces of data, we would eliminate one of the known problems with fee estimation based on mempool, which is that miners or other people can inflate the mempool to trick you into paying high fees. So we've eliminated that problem by starting with the upper bound set by Bitcoin Core's fee estimator, which which is based on blocks, which is a lot harder to take, and then would move it down to the mempool. So the worst case you would have is that your, your transaction would take longer to confirm than you expected. You wouldn't have the worst case where you'd be paying extra fees, and there's no way to profit from the case where your transaction takes longer to confirm. So there's no incentive, or at least a lot less incentive, for somebody to try to manipulate his uh, algorithm. So I thought that was really cool. I like the practical ones. We kind of get sidetracked by the big changes and focus on those, You know, whether it's like consensus changes like Segway2x or even bigger picture, ICOs, Ethereum, all of these sexy, cool stuff, when really the most impactful changes, you know, we saw was 0.15 on the fee estimation, but even something as basic as being able to set your target further out so that you can benefit from a lower fee estimate seem pretty basic to us, but it takes dedicated software development efforts to actually see them into the world and have them function as we want them to function in a reliable manner. Yeah, I I think the same way. I worry that the big changes are really sexy. You get your name out there. Everybody's giving you praise for coming up with some brilliant idea. But a lot of these lower level changes, there's just a huge number of them. If you go back to the earlier Bitcoin core release notes, there's just lists and lists and lists of really boring changes that people would only care about if they weren't done. It's widely known that 
when um, Satoshi added the one megabyte block size limit, that version of Bitcoin Core could not handle one megabyte blocks. In fact, we saw with the, the split between Bitcoin Core 0 0.7 and 0.8, that non-deterministic hard fork, if you want to call it that, consensus failure is a better name, nodes were completely unprepared for large blocks. I mean, that was, that was a failure on a 750 kilobyte block. And so a lot of these changes that happen in the background, like I said, nobody cares about them unless they're not done and the system starts to break. And like I said, I worry about the, the, the sexy stuff. I think Scaling Bitcoin has done a good job in general of focusing on practical stuff for Bitcoin. You know, a lot of these talks were things that I think could actually get into Bitcoin. They're not pie-in-the-sky ideas. Uh, and they're not nebulous things like, you know, Ethereum's constant hand-waving about sharding. So I was happy, but I do like the practical stuff. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's also a framing issue because uh, one of the ways that Ethereum is is pumped in relation to Bitcoin is this idea that Ethereum is where all the computer science and innovation and all this stuff is happening because they have these these big ideas to to share. When Bitcoin, we already did a lot of the computer science in the sense that we produce something that works and works very well. And now we have this thing that we can tune up and really supercharge just how it is already. And all of the additional sexy stuff are things that would surely make you know Bitcoin even more incredible, but they're not required to make Bitcoin incredible. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we've done a great job on scaling so far. And like I said, a lot of that has been stuff that's going to be completely transparent to the users, which is kind of how you want to do it. You don't want to have a hard fork every three months or whatever Ethereum is doing because Every time you do that, there's a potential huge change to the rules that users have to consider. And Ethereum has actually done that. I'm not just talking about the, the DAO incident, but they've also, I think, twice now repriced their functions for their programming language. And they've made a bunch of contracts unspendable. They were actually, for this most recent multi-sig thing, they were talking about bundling in refunds for those previous cases where they made money unspendable through a hard fork. So we don't want to do a hard fork or even soft forks very often because they can change the rules of the system. Soft forks are a little bit better because they they usually only change the system in very small and easily analyzable ways. But like I said, you don't want users having to evaluate a brand new cryptocurrency, which is what a hard fork is, a brand new cryptocurrency, every three months. You want them to be able to just go the course. I want to be able to, you know, put away hodlings and not see them again in 20 years and know that it's still going to function just as I expected to when I put them in. Yes, and I think that's very important for a lot of uh, not just individuals, but companies. Like we look at all the craziness around SegWit 2X, every single company had a slightly different policy on how to handle a hard fork. And that's just, I think that's insane, you know. Uh, if you can't have a single standard policy, there's something wrong. Yeah, and I, I know an engineer uh, at, a, at a major company who had to spend months preparing for Segwit2x, extremely you know, hard and rigorous work to, to prepare them for this event, and then it didn't even happen. So uh, the poor guy had to do all that work for what turned up is nothing. Yeah, hopefully he can... Uh... You know, say that in a file, and it might be useful again if somebody else, somebody else tries a uh, contentious hard fork with no replay protection. Hopefully, though, but my hope at least is that we learn our lesson and that we insist upon replay protection. Whether we do the the thing AG Towns described at Scaling Bitcoin last weekend, or we or we force something else on the community, 
I think it's important that we insist on replay protection for hard force just to protect the users. Yeah. And save developers from that time. We should put, you know, pictures of hardworking engineers on, on television with Sarah McLachlan music playing, uh, to make people really value, you know, what it takes to actually implement these ideas. It's not something you can just spit out. Yes. Yes. Well, David, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. Really appreciate having you. Thank you again for having me. I think that we learned a lot. There was a lot of subject matter uh, covered. So we'll be putting links in the show notes so that our audience can dig deeper into these all these different topics. I know you have on Bitcoin Tech Talk a post about Merkleized abstract syntax trees. So we look forward to our uh, audience reading up on that. So uh, yeah, thank you, David. And uh, thank you, Michael, for hosting on our second episode. We'll have our third episode next week. Uh, we don't have a guest lined up, but we'll find someone almost as good as David. Thank you again, guys. It's great having you, and you're welcome back anytime. United, the peace-loving nations have demonstrated in the West that their arms are stronger by far than the might of dictators or the tyranny of military cliques that once called us soft and weak. The power of our peoples to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it was proved in Europe.